Hello, and welcome back to MetaStation. I'm Claire. I'm a 34-year-old writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm a 33-year-old English professor in Mississippi. And today we are talking about episode 314, Red Sky at Morning, which for anyone who maybe does not know the provenance of that title, it's from an old sailor's saying, Red Sky at Morning, Sailors Take Warning, Red Sky at Night, Sailors Delight. And so it's about the color of the sunrise and the sunset predicting the future weather, but it's a sign that a big, terrible, dramatic storm is going to come, as we all saw in this episode, that many terrible things did. Indeed. <laughs> Although I think in some ways, any episode of 100 could be titled Red Sky and Morning. That's true. Yeah. Like, yeah. Something terrible you will happen in this episode. You show Red Sky and Yeah, morning. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Something awful is about to happen that nobody can stop. That's every it's a day episode. That ends with y. Just another day. Yes. <laughs> and let's begin. Once again, because I feel like this is sort of always where we start, we start in Polis. I don't know why that's our pattern, During but it seems season, to be uh, seems to be our pattern. I was very excited about the Polis storyline this week, of course, because Pindra is rising. And today's segment of Pike Apologism with Claire is gonna be lit. So the first thing I thought was really spectacular about the slow coalescing of our aggressively reluctant power trio in the dungeon was the fact that, and this is just seems like honestly just classic Indra, is I believe that we're meant to believe that for however long she has been in this prison, she has just been sort of standing there in the corner facing the wall with a hidden shiv, just kind of, I guess, waiting for someone to come along that she can stab with it, which I have actually no trouble believing. I don't either. I actually, like, when that happened, I was like, this feels right. You throw Indra in the prison, she's like, I will first work the bolt out of the wall, then I will sharpen it into a shiv, and then I will fuck you up and when I will the opportunity arises. And I will stand here perfectly <laughs> still and wait. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So like, like when she run around and stabbed the dude in the skull with mm -hmm. her homemade shim, I was surprised. But like in that, that like moment, like, oh my God. Oh yes, absolutely. That was a freaking awesome moment. It was a nice little sort of reminder that Allie can't do anything without human yeah. hosts. Like all it takes is Indra stabbing that one guy and Allie is suddenly now powerless. There was a lot of interesting weaving throughout really the whole episode, power shifts with Allie where they would sort of, someone would kind of temporarily get the upper hand and then lose it and then get it again and then lose it. But the first of those moments that you see is that once they take out the guards and, you know, and Indra stabs the guy, then for a minute, then you think, oh, they have gotten the better of Allie. And then you find out, of course, that one of the people in the cell was chipped, which really is just like, that's just good common sense on Allie's part to have somebody right. watching everybody. Wait, did she? Yeah, remember the girl with the dreadlocks who was helping, who unchained Pike? No, but I think I think what happened there, so see, I thought that too the first time, but I don't think she was. Because remember, when Indra kills the second guard, Allie is gone. She's no longer in the cell with them. Like, we don't see her. Indra stabs the first one, and Allie looks kind of shocked. And then Indra stabs the second one, and then Allie is gone. And so I think, actually... When we see that girl in the City of Light, it's because she was the first one who was put on the cross and broke. I think that was what happened there. So they were all unchipped. They uh -huh. kill the guards. They make the plan. The other grounders run. Uh -huh. And then Allie says something like, they quickly rounded them all up as they were trying to escape and put them up on the crosses to convince them to take the chip. And then right after she says that, this girl shows up and says, I understand now. So I think what's happening there is that she was like being tortured and she was the first one who broke and took the chip. 
Oh, okay. After they had caught the other prisoners. That's how they figured that out. Got it. But I don't think Allie had someone in the dungeon. Okay. Which she should have. Which she should like, have, that yeah. have been smart. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I would have done, but. Yeah, I don't think she actually did. I just love the, the Murphy, Indra, Pike dynamic. Like, those three actors are just so great. So great. For one thing. And then for another thing, I just think, like, they do such a nice job of kind of showing the moments of hesitation and then the moments where, like, what leverages them into working with each other, you know, is really interesting to watch Pike say Murphy is right, you know, like that's a smart strategic plan. And then Indra have to accept the validity of the strategy that they're pursuing. Adina Porter has been so amazing the last two episodes. Oh my God. Sort of like watching her work through her hesitation, like kind of like work past those feelings of sort of like knee jerk rejection of cooperation with these people that she considers enemies. And sort of like seeing what that does to her, there's almost like moments of close to panic, you know, there's just like sense that she's violating something that has been sort of her core structuring beliefs for so long. You know, we get that when she's she's like, okay, I'm going to cooperate with Pike. And then later when she picks up the gun, I thought that was really cool and really interesting the way that these three people come together and sort of work them through to accepting that we have to work together to achieve this common goal. You know, we have to set aside the stuff in the past. And then once they've gotten a little bit past that, you know, they've established that, they're even starting to be able to look to each other and like see each other's value. I was thinking about when we talked last week about sort of the difference between what Allie considers unity versus true authentic unity as exemplified by the sort of weirdo little bond that was kind of already starting to form among these three last week. I think that we've been getting really clear messages sort of throughout this season that, and we talked about this before too, when somebody says, you know, we need each other, or when somebody says we're doing this together, or I need you, when language like that is used and that all of those people are being their full, complicated, authentic selves, it's like, that's the narrative telling us this is how it is supposed to work. So when people try to go off on their own, or when people try to ally or bond with somebody without allowing that person to sort of fully be themselves, those things tend to not be successful. And this feels like a really sort of tidy little microcosm you have one grounder one sky person and one delinquent all of whom are at this point in time sort of outcast from their own people for all kinds of various different reasons and it's like representative of the most extreme kind of examples of each one you know like oh that's true like murphy is the most delinquent of the delinquents yeah right? like, yeah exactly like chaos. and pindra or pindra, <laughs> pindra. <laughs> They're not yet one person. Uh, Indra has always been like the grounder of grounders. You know, like she is the grounder who so firmly believes in all the things that it's like, she's like the preeminent grounder. And then Pike is kind of like the character who represents everything about the sky people that like the most extreme or most like sort of pure version of what the sky people always believed or did. So it is interesting too, that you have each kind of like stand for their groups in some ways. Yeah. And that Indra and Murphy don't have a relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. So Pike is kind of the central focal point of the triangle in a way that I yeah. find really narratively satisfying. It takes his arc in a different direction. You know, seeing him show the leadership skills that must have been how he got all those people on farm station to follow him. And mm-hmm. we didn't meet him until that was already sort of established and there was something kind of horrifying about how in lockstep they all were with this really violent killer-be-killed mentality. He is a survivor. He's a fighter, but he's also a leader. You know, he rallied those people. There yeah. must have been a reason that that worked. He's a smart tactician. You know, he's like, this is the smart play. So it's just interesting sort of seeing that, like, he's 
arguably, I think, of 3A, probably the most hated character on the show. And now pairing him with two of their characters who are fan favorites for their stubborn, (laughs) unrelenting-ness, you know, and that... um, And sass. (laughs) Yeah, we get to see sort of new shades of all of them. And you want to intro... Interesting, interesting because, you know, Adina gave a lot of interviews at the beginning of this season where she kind of talked about Indra's arc over the course of the season being a lot about her having to really kind of come face to face with questioning the things that she had come to believe about herself, about grounder culture, about what it means to be a grounder. Obviously, one big part of that is her sort of having the curtain pulled back on the commander mysticism and how deeply integrated that is with the technology that we've seen all along throughout the whole show that she has a particular fear of. So the moment where we see her not just allying with the sky people after they killed 300 of her soldiers and not just with Pike specifically, but that Pike tells her to pick up a gun and she does it. It's such a great callback to the moment in the first or second episode where she's in the rover with Kane and he Mm -hmm. tries to hand her a gun and she says no, you know, so it's like closing the circle on that arc for Indra. It does feel like a really interesting bit of foreshadowing about the conversation that we've been having all along about what's the world going to look like in season four when all those sort of boundaries have fallen down. And so when we get these little moments of boundaries blurring and lines being crossed and little moments like a grounder who has been vehemently insistent on never using firearms and she didn't fire it, you know, but she picked it up. You know, it just makes you wonder in the future, in the next version of sort of what their civilization looks like, where are those lines going to be drawn? And potentially, I think, a different sort of integration between the Grounders and the Sky People in terms of things like use of technology. That could be an interesting story to tell in season four is, is there sort of a running thread of how the Grounders begin to learn to use technology again? Yeah, and in what ways they integrate it and what ways are still kind of like taboo or that they resist or, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Another thing I thought that was really interesting about the scene where they're like about to destroy the backpack and Murphy is delayed by Emery. And this is something that I think has happened a few times already and it happens again later is the ways that Ellie is able to use or leverage human emotion and love in particular as a kind of like way to control or manipulate people who are not in the city of light. We talked a little bit about this in previous episodes and the sort of like, the alley version of love is sort of like emptied of empathy and compassion right, right. or just it becomes leverage. It becomes simply yeah. like if you do X, then this person will do Y kind right. of situation. And that's basically what happens again, right? It's like Ali is standing there encouraging Emery, you know, like keep talking, tell him that if he destroys it, that you'll be gone. You know, like they know they have this information that Murphy cares about her. The whole scene, I was like, God, Murphy, you picked the wrong time to grow a heart, buddy. Like, Seriously. You need to hold Murphy back. You know, Murphy's yeah. like, fuck you, better. You know, like they're sort of like they're aware that that he has these feelings and the ways that they can be leveraged, they can be used against him. But I think it's really interesting, you know, and we see that again with Monty and Hannah. They yeah. use Hannah in the same way, and then again with Derek and Luna. I sort of wonder, like, how exactly does Allie process emotions? Like, we know Raven said to Monty, "That's his mom. You know, that's her mind. She's real. She's in there." And I think when Raven says that, we're meant to believe that that's true. So his mom is really in there, which means that technically everything about her is in there, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. technically all these feelings 
I mean, technically love is in Allie. Like it's right, in there as right. data. It's a part of these people. And so it really makes me wonder, like, how does Allie process emotions? And is it always inevitably in the same way, right? Like it seems like the people who are in there are still capable of remembering and getting in touch with and using feelings that they had. You know, Hannah talking to Monty and Emery talking to Murphy. They do it because Allie is telling them to use them as manipulation. But like now I'm starting to question, like, does that mean that they aren't real? Or like, in what sense are they real? You know, like, where are those emotions? Are they still real in the sense that we would understand them as being real somewhere? So we see this pattern where it's like, love is weakness for Allie in a lot of ways, because love is the weakness that she can use to leverage people to do things for her or to manipulate people who are outside of the city of light. But there was that moment when Hannah was deleted, right? And Allie looked like she got punched in the gut. Yeah. Like Allie reacted physically. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not a physical being, but you know, it's like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Kind of like yeah. I had a moment where I was sort of like, I wonder, like the more people who are in Allie, she has more brains working. She has more knowledge, but she also has all the emotions of all those people. Right. So does that change her? Well, and, and that gets to the question that we were asking before about Jaha's influence is increasing the number of people in the city of light and sort of increasing and diversifying her data pool, does that in some way lessen his mind being the preeminent mind, which it clearly still is. He seems like he's very much kind of driving the ship in a lot of ways, you know, in the storyline. In the earlier phases of this story where Jaha was either the only person in the City of Light or sort of the primary person in the City of Light, it made much more sense why all of Ali's sort of behavior and choices was really shaped by Jaha. And we even saw it again tonight where, like, it is Jaha's idea to play the Hannah card. You know, he says, like, if it's Monty Green, I can take care of it. So he's the one who suggests, let's use his emotions to manipulate him and stall, you know. And to some extent, it seems like that makes sense because he is a human being still technically at some level. And so he would be more able to sort of intuitively know the ways that emotions could be used as leverage than the computer But like you said, like, that's his idea. Just like revoking free will was his idea. Right. Using Hannah was his idea. He seems to be that driver in a lot of instances. Yeah. And so, like, I wonder, I still, I don't know. You know, it's, like, totally possible that LA's going to stay the big bad to the end of the season. But there's, like, still a little piece of me that wonders if part of the finale endgame will be that the people who are in the City of Light... Like, especially Kane and Abby might be able to leverage their sort of, like, love and emotion from within, you know? I wonder about that, too. And I and particularly, I think what I've sort of been thinking a lot about is what could happen in terms of sort of waking those emotions back up in a way that can, can push back a little bit against Allie when Clark, with both AIs in her head, sort of crashes through into this city of light and finds her mother. What does that prompt Abby potentially to remember? And does one of them remembering prompt more of them to remember? I was also finding some interesting sort of things to consider in this episode. And the camera work did some cool stuff with this too, is the extent to which everyone is networked together. And networked to Allie. So the really cool kind of smash cuts from like Allie on the oil rig to Allie in the temple to Allie in the citadel. All those transitions were really cool. But there were occasional moments where you sort of wonder 
does everyone have all the information that Ali has? Do they all have the information that each other has? Because Jaha not knowing how she knows that Sinclair is dead means that there are things that Ali has cooking that not everybody, even Jaha, sort of seems to be in the loop on. And so the question of like, who else knows what's inside the Citadel? To what extent are they all in each other's brains? And so the reason I sort of wonder about that in terms of the love thing is are we being set up for a situation where all it takes is one person inside the City of Light to like experience a genuine emotion, even like a painful one, to sort of make a crack that then filters through to everybody else. And like if they pull out one person, does that sort of send the whole thing crumbling down because they're all sort of hive minded together, you know, like like planting a bug in a computer system, you know, and all the computers that are networked to it then also have that same bug, you know. And so I do wonder, I think that the love is weakness refrain can mean a lot of different things in the context of, of what's going on with Ali, particularly the way Jaha sort of has this idea with Hannah and Monty that is then sort of immediately mirrored with Ali suggesting the same thing to Amori. I think the message the show is giving us is still that love is the thing that makes you make the right choice and that people who are making decisions based in a desire to save or protect somebody that they care about, those tend overall to be the right decision in a way that sort of bears out the idea that love is weakness means that love is Allie's weakness and is eventually going to be how she is shut down. But she is also using it really tactically and strategically all throughout Murphy and Amore's sex scene and then Cain and Abby and then Amore pleading with Murphy in the temple, Hannah and Monty twice, you know, sort of reiterating all of these, like the most efficient way to exploit people isn't necessarily through, you know, an army of strangers marching up on them with guns drawn. It's to send mm-hmm. your mom or your lover or somebody that you care about in the hopes that you will then be unable to harm them. Murphy was the one that couldn't and Monty was the one that did. And that little yeah. flip I found. That was really fascinating. I mean, this is yeah. like an awesome episode for Monty. The other big love being leveraged as a weakness thing in this episode was Derek taking the chip to stop them from yeah. torturing Luna. That's another pattern that is really like consistent now after Abby and then Kane and now Derek yeah. is that this is a go-to method that Allie is using now, which is I will find the person that you care about and I will hurt them until you promise to take the chip and then I will stop hurting them. Yeah. Allie has decided or has recognized love is a, is a sort of weakness to exploit. But again, I sort of wonder, you know, like to go back to sheer speculation about how those inside of the city of light could wind up taking it down from the inside. It's like, well, okay. So, you know, she said something like Jasper was slowing down the efficiency of the whatever in this episode. And so I wonder, like, is there a difference between the people who take the chip willingly versus the people like Kane and Abby and Derek who take the chip because they love someone so much they don't want them to hurt? those minds when they're inside of Allie like do they retain the memory of the reason that they made that choice and are these the kinds of minds that are going to be able to access those emotions again from within and I think also like to go back to the Iliad reference at the beginning of the season I think it's really likely that one of the things that they wanted people to connect to that reference is Trojan horse as a computer virus, right? Yeah. So we maybe should be looking for like, who are going to be the Trojan horses inside of the computer, right? inside of Alley, or what is the computer virus? Not just love, like someone outside loving, but like the love and the connection that the people inside of it still have, figuring out maybe how to leverage that. And I actually think after this week, 
<laughs> after the total disaster of this week for our heroes. I actually am less and less convinced that Clark is going to ever take the flame. Really? Um, yes. And I'm not sure. It could still happen. They could still like figure out a backdoor sort of way for her to take the flame. But I actually think now, my hunch is, that Clark is just going to wind up being chipped. And mm. that Raven is going to figure out a way to hack the flame into the City of Light on her own. And it may not involve a Nightblood at all. There might be another secret surprise Nightblood in Polis somewhere that they find to give it to, or maybe they'll figure out how to turn someone into a Nightblood, but I, I'm not sure how that would happen now. So my hunch about next week is that Roan gagging Clark and taking her to Polis is actually going to be a diversion so that everybody else can sneak into the temple and hack into the pod to try to get to Allie mm -hmm. on the Ark. So, like, I sort of suspect that what's going to happen is that Raven's going to be able to figure out some, like, backdoor way to get the flame to work. I mean, because they can activate it. They just can't access the data in it. So I think that maybe Raven's going to figure out a way to access the data in it and hook it up to the City of Light. Clark's going to wind up being chipped, possibly because Allie leverages someone she loves life. And then when Clark is in the City of Light, like that will be the journey of Clark figuring out how to resist Allie from within. So then how are you envisioning that she then encounters Lexa, who's in the other AI? That's that's Raven, because Aww. Raven is hacking the two together. Okay. So this is why the two City of Lights are crashing into each other, and this is why Lexa's like oh. fighting, you know, with the other City of Light people. And so uh -huh, also uh -huh, like uh -huh. so like when Clark is in there, we know from the spoiler pictures that she looks very surprised to see Jasper. Yeah. Because she didn't know he was chipped. She also is surprised to see Lexa. So I think like Clark is gonna be in the City of Light. And, like, through these encounters that she has with the people who are in there, including Lexa and Jasper, and I'm sure Abby mm -hmm. um, and Kane, she's the hero, right? Like, she's going to be the one who figures out how to resist from within and lead the rebellion or whatever. And I think that will probably, hopefully, involve, like, what we predicted before the season even started, which is that it will involve a moment of sort of affirmative rejection on Clark's part of the kind of happy oblivion. That right. is the city of light and a choice to embrace what reality is. And that'll be like a really difficult and painful choice, obviously, because like, you know, we know from the one time per episode that Clark gets to look mournfully at the flame, which she still loves <laughs> Lexa very deeply, though she cannot tell anyone or talk about it. You know, she's like, wah, wah, sad. But she anyway, needs to be able um, to talk about her relationship. I'm still yeah, salty about exactly. this. Anyway, it's yeah. Still salty. It's like, it yeah. feels so much like a love triangle that yeah. like once an episode she stares at the flame and then Bellamy stops and he looks at her and she looks at him and he looks sad and it's like, you're trying to avoid the love triangle, but like friends, that is how you shoot a love triangle. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. I like this theory partly because I what I like about this is that it gives Raven a huge amount of agency. Because I yes. think that I think Raven that, will also be the hero. So then Clark and Raven yeah. are the two like number yes. one heroes. Which I'm totally which like, into. Yeah. Yes. Because I do feel like, and maybe this is a good transition to sort of slide over into talking about what happened in Arcadia. Post Ally Raven, who has this insane genius super brain, but also I think it's amped up her fundamental Raven recklessness, you know? So she does what this show has been telling us all along is the wrong thing, which is that she doesn't wait for the team. She doesn't ask for help. She goes in herself and it's yep. a massive tactical mistake. Monty early yeah. on was like, okay, well, we'll do this together. You know, we're supposed yeah. to wait. And she rejects that, which at this point we know is like bad idea. Like yeah. anytime you decide to go it alone. Yeah, it's bad not gonna idea. work. Yeah. So I like the idea of a finale wrap up that allows her to 
make use of the information that she learned so Monty didn't kill his mom twice for nothing, that she does somehow find a way to get through to Clark to sort of bridge the two AIs to help Clark get into the Citadel. P.S. I'm so goddamn excited about the Citadel. I could just (laughs) die. My sci-fi trope of choice is like, there's a secret fortress somewhere overlooking this city and it's locked and full of secrets. What's it going to look like inside? What does the kill switch look like? What's guarding it? Because all we've seen of it is the big lobby, you know, with Ali and Jaha sort of standing on that railing looking down over the city. I'm sure that it gets like spookier and more sci-fi when you get inside. I feel like sort of the introduction of that as a concept and the idea also too that like Monty sees code and Raven can actually see into the city of light. And I thought that felt in some ways almost like a missed opportunity to give us a really fun sort of visual of ghost Raven walking around downtown, you know, that she can see Allie and she can see these people and that they can't see her, you know, and I understand why they sort of shot it the way they did. And it was very tense and high stakes sort of without that. But I, you know, but again, like I feel like the fact that Jaha is the only person whose journey in the city of light we've seen, we haven't really seen any of our principles that are in the City of Light. Like, Amori was the most significant person besides Jaha that we've seen on the other side. So it makes sense if they're saving that all for sort of, that we're going to follow it through Clark's eyes. I think that makes a lot of sense. Could be a cool visual sequence for us to see Raven inside the Matrix, spying on Allie unnoticed. But it was, that whole sequence was so tense and it was really really well done like, yeah the, the direction of this episode was fantastic it like, the way that really was, was really yeah tense. It was really cool this episode the way that we saw our various sets of heroes pushing Allie to moments of pushing her to have to do extreme things yeah that kind of gave us some information about her vulnerabilities you know so like you said she is dependent upon meat space like she needs bodies that have eyes and ears and can do things in the world. And without everybody being in that, she's kind of helpless, right? So that's a weakness that could be exploited. And it's kind of neat in its simplicity in the way that, like, Murphy could just exploit that by putting a blanket over Emery's head. You know, if Emery cannot see, then yeah. Allie can't see, you know? So that was kind of cool. And then also we found out, like, yes, okay, so she is a computer program. So she is also dependent upon, like, a physical computer in which she is housed and obviously now that computer is in space so she feels a little like she's impregnable but there's still connections right like she's sort of housed in a computer but she has to be able to network into different places into different people so i think that's a vulnerability and then of course like raven being able to break into the citadel and find out that like yes Allie has a kill switch and if you have the code if you can get to the code then raven can change it she can delete people she can change the geography of the place. You know, like if she wanted to delete buildings, she could delete buildings. If mm-hmm. she wanted to build a bridge, she could build a bridge, you know? So like if, if Raven has access to Allie's code, we also know that Raven is kind of like almost going to be unstoppable. It's going to be like a battle between Raven changing Allie's code and Allie trying to prevent her from doing it or rechange her code back. You know, it'll be like kind of like a battle between Raven and Allie and on like the, the basic like code level, which is really awesome. You know? Yeah, like, and it could be visually so cool. Yeah, and so I think like, you know, there was rumors out earlier on of like the final City of Light battle in the finale is there's going to be like, this, the city's going to wind up in ruins and, you know, there's going to be explosions and things like that. You know, so now we know that like probably a lot of that is going to be Raven. You know, it's going to be like Raven like coding her ass off, you know, like yeah. destroying things that are in Clark's way, you know. We're getting a better sense of, like, what Allie's 
what the, her leverage points are. You yes. know, if she knows what human leverage points are and it's love, it's emotion, it's connection, then we're starting to learn what her leverage points are, at least some of them. And then maybe once we get inside, we'll get more. Those Raven and Monty scenes were so good. And Chris Larkin and Lindsay Morgan were amazing. Like everyone oh just like, killed it this episode. Yeah. And I was like, not totally surprised because it's Monty, but I, I wasn't sure he was going to delete his mom. But like the fact that he did that, you know, it was just like one of those moments where I was like, this is why you're the best person in this world, Monty Green. Like yeah. you are the best one. <laughs> well, and it was so um, interesting because they really set it up the last couple of episodes. Shots of him looking yeah, at the ship. That's and why I wasn't sure he was going to do it, you know? Yeah. And, and, that, and that was all that was so necessary so that we would doubt and also that we would feel what it meant for him to hit delete. You know, yeah. like we know how much pain he's been in about what he did to her and how much grief he's been in, you know, like we never liked Hannah, but like you could never, ever doubt that Monty loved his mother. And seeing him having that conversation with sort of a gentler version of her, like not yeah. in her military uniform, but like in a mom sweater, dressed like a mom, speaking in like a gentler kind of cadence, like City of Light Hannah and of course, it's all an illusion, but feels sort of warmer and more maternal in a way where you can sort of picture like, this is probably the mom that he remembers before she like crashed down to earth and became Pike's gun toting, grounder killing military sergeant. Or, you know, I, I don't know. Like, is it an illusion or is it just like a selected aspect of her? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this yeah. is what I mean about like, I'm not sure like what the status of emotions are in Allie. Right. Well, Allie, they're, they're data, but they're like accessible, but only selectively. Right. Like, so it's not that they're not real. It's just that they're not like processed in the way that human being emotions are. I don't know. But like whoever that was, that was Hannah. It was maybe just like, it was the part of Hannah that Allie needed to access at that moment and sort of like stripped of the rest of it. Well, because it's all filtered heavily through, like if you, if you think about the fact that everyone in the city of light is wearing clothes from the era that Allie remembers because it's the era that her creator was alive. So right. everyone is dressed from like Becca's time, the same way that Allie is. Right. You know, right. so every person that we see has been sort of put through the Allie filter of Allie's understanding of humanity and the fact that they're all dressed differently and that the city looks like a 21st century city because that's what she remembers the world looking like that's what's sort of stored in her data I feel like in some ways is like a little visual cue that everything that we see has sort of been like run through the alley filter so it does make me wonder I continue but, to have questions about like, what's the here's authentic the other, here's the other wrinkle though we know from Emery that there is some degree of choice in the city of light about which aspects of it yourself that you retain like it's oh, not like true. they're all processed through alley and then they're just like they're spit out in the alley version of them because Jaha says to Emery, well, I don't remember exactly what it says, you can get rid of your um, deformities your or something. defects or yeah. something in the City of Light. And Emery says, like, I don't see it as a defect or whatever. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. um, but what that tells us is that, like, when you're in the City of Light, there is some degree of choice that you have about how you present yourself, you know, or like which parts of yourself you retain. Which is really interesting because before this episode, I don't necessarily think that I would have presumed that. I would have just thought like everyone except for Jaha for whatever reason is basically just, you know, like stripped down alley drone right. inside of the City of Light. It may have something to do with the reasons why you went into the City of Light. You know, like you, you lose the things that are painful to you, but the things that aren't painful to you, you don't lose. Emery's mutation is not a source of pain. So she retains that, mm -hmm. you know. 
Jaha has forgotten Wells because Wells is a source of pain. So it does make me wonder about someone like Abby or Kane. Do they retain the memory right. of the love that made them choose to take the chip? Is love a positive enough thing for them? Right. That they can choose to keep that part of themselves where other people in the City of Light might not. I don't know. But like it, the, the whole Emery thing kind of raises that question. That's a really good point because the juxtaposition of Emery and Hannah in this episode is really interesting. I hadn't quite thought of this before, that this is the Emery is the first person that we see inside the City of Light besides Jaha, who has retained any agency and any recognizable traits of her own personality. Partly it's because besides Jaha, she's the only truly significant character from this ensemble who we've seen in both her chipped and non-chipped versions. And so the fact that she is still a sass pants, which was really delightful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the fact that she remains unimpressed by Jaha and the fact that she was given the ability to choose what to look like or how to present herself and opted for that totally adorable olive green peacoat that I want. <laughs> which I just love. Oh my God, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fun seeing, I think again, because she's sort of the first one that we've seen, I don't care about Jaha's wardrobe as much, but seeing cleaned up City of Light, 21st century, cute peacoat Amori, but with her face tattoos and the juxtaposition of her real self with that Ali created physical self was really interesting, but it does sort of make you wonder, like, if Amori kept her hand, if Amori's physical body is, you know, something that she was permitted to choose what parts of it to keep, then what does that tell us, like you said, about Hannah's love for Monty and to what degree that's authentic? And I do feel in some ways... If it was something that was in her mind, then it's something that's been uploaded into Allie. We know it's there. Yeah, The question is, what does it become? Like, what is it? Is it just data? I don't know. Like... Is the whole emotion, the whole emotional experience saved as data? Or is it simply that sort of relational kind of like matrixy way that Allie leverages love? Do you have a choice about how, you know, like this is the question. Right. And I think like if you go back to last week and the Abby Kane scene, you know, when mm-hmm. Abby is chipped and she's manipulating Kane, the fact that we now know that there is some degree of agency potentially for some people within the City of Light it raises that question again, like how much of that was Abby? How yeah. much of it, Abby is there left in the city of light that has some kind of independent awareness of what's happening? You know what I mean? But here's another question. So if, when you are still alive, when your body still exists, we know that all of Hannah's mind is in Allie because there's nowhere else for it to be, right. right? If you're still alive, if your body is still alive, all the data in your brain is accessible by Allie. But is it all in Allie yet? And are there things in your like physical human brain that don't make the transfer into the computer? So in other words, as long as like you are still alive on the outside, is there something else about you that exists that is accessible on some level by you that is not a part of the City of Light in Allie? That's a wonderfully sort of metaphysical question and and i and i feel like that this one <laughs> gets into because, well, is yeah. it really like is it come from the physical structures of the brain <laughs> like because that makes me think like if she has the data from your brain but not your soul it, is the data from your brain your consciousness or is there something in addition to right, the data in right. your brain that is your consciousness in you which is right. like another way to say soul without it being without right. it being soul and my question about that is 
was Amori lying or being tactical with the truth? When she tells Murphy, if you destroy that, you are wiping all of our minds and we will never get them back because they all live on that server, which implies in a way that they've been that they're linked that the mind is linked to a server in a way where destroying the server doesn't just sever the connection, it deletes the data from both the server and the human mind. But I think we have to know that that's a lie, because if that were true, then when they de-chipped Raven, wouldn't she have lost everything, if that were true? Well, but she came back with more, that's the thing. I mean, like, this, this is yeah, where I get right, confused. Exactly. So it seems like it's not a one-way thing, as long as, like, the physical brain still exists. It's like you're networked in and like the, your your brain is another server that contains all of that stuff. Right. It clearly is a reciprocal flow of information. Right. You know, because data from Raven's brain went into Allie that was then used tactically that we saw in Nevermore where like all of her thoughts and memories and the things that she knows about these people were used strategically as weapons. But right. also that then information from the Allie hive mind has filtered back to Raven. And what we don't know yet, which I think is sort of interesting to kind of think about is, so does de-chipped Raven, she has access into Allie does she also still retain everybody else's memories? The idea of people coming out of the City of Light having been networked to each other and having sort of a level of access to the memories and thoughts and kind of past and history of each other could be a fascinatingly fucked up season four. You know, like people knowing... So what you're really asking is like, will they emerge with a memory of Emery banging uh, Murphy? (laughs) (laughs) That is... That might that might a little bit have been what I meant. Did Murphy have <laughs> sex with all of them? <laughs> does that mean that when Clark goes in that she will remember banging? Oh my god. Murphy? Well, does that mean when Clark goes in that, that Clark made out with her stepdad? <laughs> oh my god. Jesus. <laughs> We've gone to some terrible places. Okay. And her mother simultaneously. Oh god. Oh. Really good thing they did not have sex. I'm oh yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy that Kane smelled bullshit early enough to be like, I don't think that this feels right before we ended up having to get into some weird, creepy area. But <laughs> we're trash. But I do <laughs> so I have a lot of questions about the back and forth data transfer between Ali and Brains and how it is possible that removing the AI from Raven captured with a certain amount of knowledge. And so is it possible that just like, is Raven special because Raven had more of a capacity to understand a lot of it's these things? Possible. It's you know? just that Raven is more, because she's more intelligent, she has a higher capacity for learning and retaining information. Yeah. So the information that she encountered when she was in there, which is obviously a lot, she formed memory. She was able to learn that information right. and keep it in a way that possibly other people might not just because she's like, she is so smart. Yeah. So the other thing that we know that might be kind of like another piece of this puzzle is that Allie 2, the flame, we know that in order to solve the problem with Allie 1, which had something to do with this kind of like detached calculation, which was not able to sort of account for the value uh, that humanity put on things that isn't totally rational or logical, right? Right. One of the ways that she solved this was by making the flame so that it like merges more with human consciousness. I can't remember how Raven talks about it, but you know, like the gene therapy is a part of like the flame becomes a part of you rather than taking over. It sort of like merges with you and it's able to kind of like more completely integrate with the human brain in a way that seems like it's more similar to how the human brain actually functions rather than kind of like, 
taking over and replacing it with the way that the computer functions. That makes me think that perhaps there is something about like, the human brain is not analogous to a computer, right? Or not analogous to, to a computer of the, of the kind that Ali one is. Right. That there is something additional about the human brain and consciousness that cannot be like reduced to memory and experience as data. Something extra, something additional, something sort of external to that. Right. And so the flame, because like they said, like the flame just makes you more who you are, right? So like yeah. the flame is able to sort of like merge with whatever that is and enhance those capabilities rather than replacing them, which seems to be what Ally does. And so that's what makes me wonder, like, so for the people, but again, like this is all dependent on, like you said, like their existing human brain to be in a relationship with the computer. So like, I, it does make me wonder, like if your body is dead, the data in your mind is a part of the city of light. But if your body isn't dead, then your brain is still out there doing its brain thing. You know, yeah. it's doing its brain thing kind of in dialogue with, in connection to Ali. But it's still your brain and it still has these other capacities. So I wonder if like for those people who are still alive outside of it, who have this extra capacity or this like extra resistance, you know, that 3% who always right, right, are resistant, right. who only join sort of under duress because of those special relationships, like... So the fact that Abby is alive, her brain is out there still loving Clark in some level. Allie's taken over executive control over the brain, right? Like yeah. Allie's sort of able to, to like decide what you're going to do or right. say, more or less, right? But like, is there still something else? As long as you're alive, is there still something else that could be activated? Well, and the, and the science of it, a little bit of information that we do get about the science about the chip works from Jaha early on when he's trying to sell Jasper on the chip and Abby intervenes. He basically describes it as blocking particular messages from getting through, you know, from the unconscious to the conscious, but not removing them. So, so the, like suppressed, they're still there. Yeah, you're no longer able to manifest them as conscious, but that they aren't gone. So that feels to me like that we sort of been, have been being set up all along, and I feel like this is still the direction that we're going, that your ability to recover those memories, which we've seen Raven do. Raven retained just enough consciousness of Finn to figure out what was happening to her and want it to stop. Her memories didn't come flooding back, but it was sort of just like that little push. So I feel like we're sort of being set up for somebody's suppressed memories or somebody's, you know, blocked memories coming back to them while they're inside the city of light. Yeah. Being that sort of Trojan horse, kind of as the glitch in that code. And my guess is and this is purely just based on the fact that I don't think we would have been getting this much sort of subtle visual weight on this if it wasn't important. It's going to be Clark and Abby and Jake's ring. Yeah, yeah. I think, and maybe this is wishful thinking because I feel like Abby hasn't really been used super well this season. Like all her material yeah. has been great, but she's missed five episodes and she hasn't been in a lot of major storylines that she should have been in. So I want her to have a key role in the finale. Like I really want her and Clark's relationship to be, I want all of these sort of parallels with like Monty and Hannah um, and, and all of this sort of like love is weakness stuff. And the, and the way that she's been costumed all season. So we're always looking at that ring. I want those things to be deliberate. That sort of sets up that Clark entering into the city of light, finding her mom and one or both of them, putting together their memories of 
Jake and that that is the thing that begins to make things crack a little bit, I, I think yeah. would be really narratively satisfying. And I'm hoping yeah. that it is something in that vicinity because I do want there to be a qualitative difference among the people who take the chip for good reasons versus the people who took the chip because they wanted to forget. It sort of makes logical sense that they would then behave differently when they were inside if they are retaining any memory of why they did what they did. Right. Yeah. No, it makes sense to me, too. I had sort of forgotten exactly how the resistance went down with Raven, but I think that's a really good point. And it does make, sort of make it seem like the key is almost like, like Allie suppresses memories that are painful. She sort of cuts off access to part of your own mind. Right. You know, so she's almost just sort of like building like walls within your own mind. Yeah, so it's like quarantined. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, it would make sense that once there's a crack, you know, like if you can just sort of latch on to some kind of anchor, some kind of connection to that other part of your brain, like Finn, like once you have, you, you get those memories back and you realize that part of you has been cut off, then it becomes possible for you to sort of like recover or reaccess those yeah. parts of your mind that have been blocked off. Right. So it would make sense for Abby and Clark to be able to do that within the city of light. And it would make sense if that happened for Abby and Clark when they saw each other, you know, like if Clark is sort of like managing to resist, I think maybe even for Abby like seeing Clark might do it or maybe not. But like you said, but like Clark, like I could see Clark, like picking up the ring off her mother's chest and saying like, don't you remember dad, you know, yeah. like, and that sort of like breaking open Abby again and then Abby being able to break open Kane, you yeah. know? So I would love that. That would make me really happy. <laughs> yeah, I would love that too. Um, I And I, partly because all I want in the whole world is a mother-daughter citadel heist. Like, I know. <laughs> I, want, so... I want Clark and Abby to break into the citadel together to hit the kill switch. I would just, that would make me, I would just die. Because then, then we get the thing that we wanted in the beginning, which is Clark and Raven and Abby being like the hero squad. And we would get that yeah. same thing, but in a totally different way. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which would be awesome. Clark and Abby shutting yes. shit down. And Bellamy on the outside bringing Clark back. Bellamy um, being the anchor to reality that she comes back to, which yes, I which I exactly. think we've been setting up clearly all along. Yes, I yeah. think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Although like at this point, the one main character that I'm like the least clear on what their role in the finale will be is Octavia. Yeah. Like I have this very like decent grasp of where I feel like everyone else's arc is going or like sort of generally where they're gonna, where they are now, where they're gonna end up. But like Octavia, I'm just like, I don't know. Well, here's something that could be full of amazing emotional intensity is if Octavia ends up with Indra working alongside Pike. Oh, that could be. Because if there's anyone in this show who would have a harder time than Indra swallowing their hatred for Pike in order to get something more important done, it's Octavia. Yeah, you're totally right. I bet that's it. You know, because anywhere that Indra goes, Octavia will go. Like, they're, you know, they're back as a power squad again, which makes me so happy. But I feel like we could get some interesting sort of emotional, um, like, Indra doesn't know that Pike killed Lincoln, but she's also a pragmatist in a way where, like, she, like, she's the one who kind of talks Octavia down about the Tondisi thing, where it's like, this is war, this is what you do, you know? So if she's come around to, like, for the moment, we need this guy alive, and Octavia is resistant to that, I think it could be, you know, because I think, and maybe this is a good transition to talking about the Adventure Squad on the oil rig. So Octavia is the person who I felt like 
watching her interact with Luna, who's glorious badassery we'll cover in a minute. But oh, um, I love her. I love her <laughs> so She's much. The best. And she brought out really interesting new things in several of the characters, but Octavia mm-hmm. particularly, I think it was fascinating to watch Octavia get called out on having become something that is not who Lincoln wanted her necessarily yes, to I be. Was so glad I was so glad that Luna said that yeah because I've been feeling that like ever since she beat up Bellamy yeah you know like all I can think is just like Lincoln of Tree Crew would not yeah. do this Lincoln <laughs> would never Lincoln, Lincoln would, would never. never Lincoln would be horrified Lincoln was always the first one to forgive you know like Bellamy tortured Lincoln yeah you know like Raven tortured Lincoln Clark tortured Lincoln and he forgave them. That's who Lincoln has always been. You yeah. know, like the backstory we got, like the only backstory we got, which is just like, I will never be done being I salty know. about. I know. How little we will ever know about Lincoln. But the only backstory yeah. we got was like last season when he told Bellamy about, you know, like finding the man who fell from the sky mm-hmm. and being forced to kill him by his father. And, you yeah. know, like that being the kind of formative moment for him when Lincoln was like, like, like internally sort of deep down was like, I am not comfortable in my own culture right, you know like right. i disapprove of the values that i'm being taught and lincoln lived that you know like in a way that was like so important and so like when luna said you know lincoln understood the rules this, this is a place you know for people who are done fighting he would never have brought this here i was like thank you like yeah thank you for finally like saying to octavia that just because you loved Lincoln doesn't mean that everything that you feel and do about the fact that he's dead is right or that that's what he wanted, you know? Right, and that Octavia's understanding of who Lincoln was as a person is sometimes not accurate. Yeah. Which is a really interesting sort of area to mine. We got a glimpse of Octavia really coming face-to-face with somebody who, in a very specific way, knew Lincoln and understood Lincoln better than she did, you know, and it's a really hard thing to watch Octavia experience that, like to sort of see her coming face to face with, you know, Lincoln and Luna had a relationship with each other that is clear, like it is clear the thing that connected them. And Octavia not only doesn't share that thing, she stands in direct opposition to that thing. And she sort of And she's masked it under kind of like that she's becoming a grounder, that she's, you know, she fell in love with the grounder and she became one of them. Like what we saw in the premiere with her really wrestling with the idea of like, she just doesn't want to be Sky Crew again. So she's sort of crafted this new identity for herself, that she's a grounder warrior. And it's not that that's a false identity, but that that was never, Lincoln didn't want that for her. Yeah. You know? And so when- She sort of became that when he was in the mountains. Yeah. You know, like he left her as she was the Octavia of season one who was learning to be tougher and learning to fight and whatever. But like he left her as that Octavia when he went into the mountain and he came out and she had suddenly become this like grounder warrior, you know, and like it does make you wonder how Lincoln felt about that, you know, and like what the, the sort of like time jump three months looked like for Lincoln and Octavia. Well, and that's and one of the things that I always really felt a little bit she did that we didn't get because I think there was some really important kind of emotional mining there that wasn't done is is to see Lincoln reckon with the things he did when he was a reaper 
Yeah. You yeah. know, like tying into that sort of the theme that, you know, that's really becoming so explicit this season about the terrible things that you're forced to do when your free will is removed from you. And that Lincoln, the pacifist, being a person who is so distant from himself and violent and is, you know, and his body is sort of rebelling against him and making him do these things he doesn't want to do and making him this sort of feral creature. Watching Lincoln kind of process that and go through that journey over those three months after everything is all over and how Octavia responds to that could have been really interesting. There was a lot of important growth that kind of got fast forwarded in the time jump. And that's one of the things where I felt like, you know, where... What has what has Lincoln gone through that he's ended up in the place where we see him in the premiere where he's made the choice to become one of them, to sort of plant his flag and say, okay, these are my people now, you know. And Octavia's resistance to trying to navigate a middle way the way Lincoln is trying to navigate a middle way is because she does have this like so extreme personality and she wants so badly to be what she thinks grounders are, which is this very narrow, specific, you know, kind of warrior culture image. And so it was really interesting seeing her encountering not just a different side of grounder culture, but a different side of Lincoln. Like this is what she's seeing is like, this is who Lincoln wanted all of them to be. Lincoln wanted yeah. everyone to be like this. You know, he wanted everyone to put their swords down and stop fighting. And so watching her figure out what if she's doing things for Lincoln's sake that he wouldn't approve of is really, really dramatically interesting. And so I'm hopeful that what that's setting up, like what her 3B arc has been sort of culminates in her in some way, her desire to get her revenge on Pike. I guess her choosing not to go that direction or her, I, I don't want her to kill Pike. You know, I, I, I really, like that's because I don't want Pike to die. We just want Pike to live. Okay? We just want Pike to live. We just want Pike to get a redemption arc. That's all I want. My no, needs are think, simple. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, like it definitely, like the fact that Luna said to Octavia, you know, like all you know how to do is fight. That's all you know how to do. That was very pointed. And I think that will come back in that, like Octavia is going to have to face up to the fact that her first reaction to any situation it's just fight it. Yeah. And that that's not, you know, we, we sort of saw that last week where like, you know, in the confrontation with Bellamy, where he was like trying to talk to her, like, what can I do? And she's just like, you know, like, I think about you and I get upset, you yeah. know, and all she knows how to do is be angry. And so like, I'm, I'm hopeful that that her arc will culminate in some kind of situation where she has to, she has to choose not to fight, like where yeah. she's confronted with a situation where she could, she could choose to fight. Or she could choose to, to do something else, to forgive, to whatever. Yeah. And that, that she makes that choice. Because I think that would be really huge for her as a character. And, like, like that's clearly where she needs to go. Is, like, Octavia is the one who, like, she doesn't know how to forgive. And I, and I also really, really hope, in addition to her not killing Pike, I would be fine with a situation in which she could choose to kill Pike and then doesn't. That would be Yes. Great. Obviously, the other thing that needs to happen to resolve Octavia's arc is she needs to choose to forgive her brother. Yes. And I think and I hope that it's, it'll have to be framed as a choice. You know, like, yeah. you could stay mad. You have plenty of reasons to be mad. But, you know, you could also choose to set that aside, you know, and to forgive. I think that too. And, and the way I see that playing out is I suspect that there's going to be where some situation is going to arise where she's going to have to save Bellamy's life and you know yeah, or if yeah. Bellamy's in danger and her Blake reflexes kick in and she instinctively without thinking has to sort of jump in to save him and that's mm -hmm. her reminder that 
her anger at Bellamy isn't the defining thread of her relationship with Bellamy. You know, like yeah, like that yeah. that the love is more important and that at the end of the day that that is what drives her. I think that she's got to be in some position where we have to get, like, I don't think it's going to end up tying up neatly in a bow, but I think we're going to get yeah. some significant step forward in their relationship. And I would like to believe that it comes from, you know, from her doing a little bit of self-reflection about who does she want to be? Because I think the thing that's yeah. really illuminating about that comment that Luna made is that when she says like, all you know how to do is fight. It's like on the one hand, what she's saying is like, is you fight too much. But on the other hand, the, the flip side of that is, which is if you take away the fighting, who is Octavia? What does she do? What does she contribute to this group? Like she's decided that her role is being like the grounder warrior. She doesn't have like, a second thing like Monty is an engineer, you know, mm -hmm. like she doesn't have a secondary skill that she's developed or a role that she's found for herself to play that is separate from that. And so, so I wonder if the question for Octavia of like, without Lincoln, without being, you know, a violent person, what's her place and who is her place with? She's got some thinking to do about like, who do you want to be, Octavia? You know, like, what's yeah, what's next yeah, for no, you, exactly. you know? And, and also another important thing about that moment is the fact that Octavia looks so startled. Yeah. When Luna says that. You know, like, yeah. when, when Luna says that to her, Octavia really looks stunned to hear that about herself. Right. Like, she looks like she kind of wants to protest, but then she, there's nothing she can say. Yeah. You know, so I think that was a really important moment of, like, like truth bomb, you know? Like, somebody needs to tell Octavia who she had become. Yeah. And, like, Luna was the perfect person. Yeah. You know, perfect because, person. like... Yeah. Because it couldn't be Bellamy, you know? Like, yeah. Like, he, he can't even see it. It couldn't be Clark. Yeah, Miles it had to be a stranger who yeah. she has sort of idolized in her mind. Because I think that, you know... She's so distraught in the last episode when she thinks that they've read the map wrong, that they're not going to find Luna. They get there, yeah. you know, and they and they just see the stone cairns and not an actual village. And I think part of why she's so wrecked by that is that she was building up in her mind that, like, at least being able to be around somebody who was friends with Lincoln would help her feel better, would help sort of yeah. salve something. And so to meet this woman... And to realize that, first of all, that sole ownership of Lincoln and Lincoln's memory does not belong to Octavia. Mm -hmm. You know, that he was important to other people besides her and before her for a long time before he even knew who she was. And that there are whole aspects of his story that she didn't live through that belong to the memories of other people. You know, I think her having to sort of let go of like, Lincoln's not just yours, you know, and that's yeah. a, that was sort of a big thing too. But also to sort of, to realize that I think that she had maybe been fantasizing a little bit about being welcomed and taken in by these people as like, oh, this is Lincoln's person, so she's one of us now because we loved yeah. Lincoln, so we're going to love her. And having Luna casually be like, you're not one of us, and Lincoln wouldn't want you to be this person. Lincoln would never have brought this Octavia here. You know, the Octavia yeah. that he wanted to bring to Luna you know, at the end of the first season, when he says, like, this is where we're going to go so that you can be safe, she was not this person, you know? Yeah. She wasn't, like, yeah. breaking into Mount Weather to save, you know, Bellamy and casually massacring guards and spraying yeah, blood no, on the she hallways. Was the, she was the Octavia who was, like, you know, sneaking into the dropship while everyone was high on those weird nuts and, like, you know, getting him out. Who Like, the butterflies and who, yeah. was, always looking, who was always looking for another way 
that wasn't a war, that wasn't fighting, you know, that like, who was always kind of like a little bit opposed to Bellamy's kind of like, all right, well, let's suit up and fight him kind of attitude. That's the Octavia that Lincoln fell in love with. And there's a part of me that just feels like, because like, so for so long, you know, like Lincoln and Octavia were kind of like the golden couple, you know, like, like, like until Lincoln died, I was, I was sure like they are the couple who are going to be like together forever, you know, like they are like the true love couple of the show or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now after this, like it was so, it's so melancholy. I really, really wonder, you know, like there's a kind of like sense in, in which from that exchange and because Lincoln and Octavia, although they clearly still loved each other very, very much, and I think always would, they were so at odds in the yeah. little bits that we saw of them together. Yeah. You know, at the very beginning of the season before he died, they're so at odds and it really, like it's very, kind of melancholy, you know, like I do mm-hmm. sort of wonder like how sad it was for Lincoln to come out of the mountain and realize what had happened, you know? Yeah. Of all of the things that got left on the cutting room floor this season, I think the fact that we only got like one or two scenes with Lincoln and Octavia and they were at the very, very beginning, I think that we lost a lot of the nuance in their relationship of him trying to sort of He's Lincoln, so he wants to, like, he wants to build peace. He wants to be, you know, sort of a bridge builder. Like he says in the very first scene that we, you know, see him with her where she's out with the horse and he comes to talk to her. And he's trying to sort of explain to her that, like, Cain and Abby, like the sky people, are trying to build a better world. They're trying to do what he wanted to do. You know, they're trying to make peace. He believes that that's genuine. And she just she just feels so claustrophobic back in that world again. I think that she kind of can't let go of how oppressive she finds the world of the sky people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like, she's right. You know, obviously, given what happens with Pike, like, you know, like, she's right. And I think, like, that that's an interesting sort of tension that is, like, again, tragic that we didn't actually get to explore. Right. Which is that, like... Like Lincoln is, was very optimistic about the possibility of transforming the system, you know, yeah. like that if there are people who want it enough to be different, that it could be. And Octavia, you know, like not that her perspective was necessarily right, but she did sort of understand the kind of like totalitarian forces or, or beliefs that kind of undergirded arc society and the ways that those could sort of like rise up and go wrong. And so like, I think, you know, it's it's interesting because like, because Lincoln was kind of the only character who really seemed to believe that some kind of new, better world could arise from within the current one as it existed. And then Lexa a little bit. And they're both proven wrong, right? Like, if this season is about, like, everything just being, like, torn down to ashes and then having to be built up from those ashes again, it's tragic and sad that Lincoln is, like, the only true optimist. Like, he died. Like, he was, and he was wrong, you know? And I think, like, Maybe we can transition to, to Luna here because like, yeah. because Luna's really interesting. Like Luna's amazing. Luna's oh my God. Luna's amazing. really, really interesting to me yeah. because I do think like, like the thing that I love about Luna the most, and I love everything about Luna, mm-hmm. but the thing that I love, <laughs> the thing that I love the most about Luna, finally, we have a true foil to the kind of like mostly unquestioned ethical assumptions that every other character has been operating under basically the entire show. From the beginning of the show, there's always been like, and this is true on the arc and this was true of the grounders. There's always been this assumption, this sort of like operating assumption is whatever you have to do to keep the most proportion of your people alive is right. The moral good is 
keeping your people alive. And, you know, like, if, if you can't keep all of them alive, then the most number. So, like, the culling was that kind of calculation. Right, right. And then also, you know, with grounders, the same kind of thing where, like, Lexa's like, well, they thought they were doing the right thing for their people. The moral good is they were making choices based on the idea that this was going to protect the most of their people that they could. Pulling the lever in Mount Weather. We had to do it, right? Clark says, like, we had to do it because if we hadn't done it, they would have killed our people. Right. And, like, obviously, like, these are extremely morally gray situations. And the, and the show has done, you know, a better job in earlier seasons of kind of, like, dwelling in the morally gray. And definitely of showing the consequences of right. those actions. Right, And particularly the human consequences. Like, they've done a pretty good job of being, like, it's not that, that doing that does not have repercussions on multiple levels. Yeah, it can be the right the, thing and still be, right be terrible. Yeah. Exactly. Like it could be it could have terrible, painful repercussions for the people who did it and then also the people who were victims of it or like related to, you know. So right. like but the idea is that I don't think the show really before this, although it showed the repercussions, but it would kind of like say, it wanted to say like but it still can be the right choice with those painful repercussions. Like mm-hmm. maybe there are no good guys, meaning maybe there is no right choice. Maybe there is no choice that doesn't involve pain, right? Right. So like now we have Luna. For the very, very first time on this show, we have a character who questions and then rejects that fundamental premise. Luna says, no, killing is never acceptable. Yeah. But how many people would I kill in order to save the people who survived is what the question that she asked Clark Mm -hmm. and Clark's attitude, you know, like Clark is kind of still in this, in this old school attitude where she's like, well, you know, like if the choice is fight or die, you fight, you know, like there is no choice. This is what you do. Like you have to protect your people. And Luna says, no, I don't. Luna takes that premise and says like, no, actually I do have a choice. I can say no. I can say killing is always wrong. I can absolutely on a fundamental level reject the basis on which you have been making your moral decisions as being morally wrong because I have an entirely separate set of moral guidelines that I'm operating under. That's what makes her super exciting to me as a character is yeah. to have this figure who is like a foil to an entire worldview, which was more or less shared by the Ark and the Grounders in different modes, right, you know, like it right. sort of manifested in different ways, yeah. but they shared that same kind of idea. Yeah. And what I find really fascinating about that is sort of the difference between believing in peace, working inside the system versus outside the system. You know, because yes. Luna yes. Luna could have won that conclave, become commander, and been a peaceful commander. She could have been an agent for peace that way. But that would have yes. required her to do things that were against her moral code. And yes. so the question of the compromises that you make, you know, it's sort of like that old saying about you know, the kind of person who can get themselves elected president is not the kind of person that could actually be trusted with the office. Right. You know, like, exactly. like yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the things that you have to do to get to the top, whoever you are and whatever, whatever your moral center was sort of when you began it, the fundamental act of climbing up the ladder of a social or political hierarchy requires that you do things that contradict the values that you yeah, say that you exactly. believed in just exactly. to get to the place where then you can hopefully do some good. And that's just yes. how politics works, you know? Right, right. Um, but, like, but again, we sort of see this at the most extreme level with the grounder where, where right. like, you know, like she is fundamentally opposed to killing. Right. Be- to become a commander, she would be required to kill. Yeah. And she has decided that, like, she will not compromise her basic moral good, which is not killing, not right. ending another person's life in service of another 
potential good, which would be being able to change the system or create a better world. Right. And like, and this is the other thing that I really, really love about Luna because like Luna's awesome. And like, that's a really, really appealing moral stance. Right. Like, and I think like at a kind of like gut level, we all want to be like, yeah, peace, obviously. Right. But like the thing that I love her and why I think she's perfect as a foil and not as an answer is that like, there are a lot of really serious questions you can raise or debate mm-hmm. that you can have about how moral her stance is. Right. Because- is it actually right? Because what she's done is to say, like, the thing that is most important to me is that I personally do not kill. Each individual person has a choice to say no to violence and no to killing. And the most important moral choice, like, like that is the choice that she privileges. Right. But what she's rejecting in the process it's basically isolationism. I was going to say, right? like, it's, an, it's a totally isolationist stance. And I have a lot of ethical questions about yes, just sort of like exactly. that. Because she she has the privilege, having physically removed herself from kind of mainstream exactly. grammar society, yeah. she has the luxury of making that choice that Clark doesn't have. Right. Exactly. And so I think, like, Luna's fantastic. Luna's great. She's, she's a perfect foil. I'm so excited about her. She is the perfect foil for Clark. Because, like, she really exposes, you know, we've sort of looked at Clark as being our, like, not really moral center, but, like, you know, like, Clark always makes the best choice she can, right? Like, she really exposes all of these kind of assumptions about Clark. And Clark had sort of, like, believed herself to be, like, Clark is the one who taught Lexa blood must not have blood. Like, Clark is supposedly, like, the source of this kind of new. And, like, and so it's, like, perfect to have a character like Luna has says, like, well, no, actually not. You have not rejected that logic. You right. know, like you are still operating under this kind of like zero sum killer be killed logic fundamentally. Like right. you need to face that the choices that you're making are premised on this on these things that you you have come to believe are not choices, but they are. And then and then um, having that juxtaposed with us seeing Clark go to the darkest place that we've seen her go, where she's basically like I'm going to just put this in her head and not ask her permission. Exactly. And also, like, I mean, like, I think it's really, really deliberate and and chilling the way in the conversation between her and Bellamy and Octavia, the way that she frames them having given Luna a choice when functionally they did not. She says, we gave her a choice. She said, no. So now we have to do this. I'm like, in that case, you didn't give Luna a choice. You gave her a false choice. You gave her the chance to agree with you, but it wasn't a choice because you just basically admitted that no matter what she said, you were going to do it anyway. You just gave her, I guess, an opportunity to do it under her own free will. But like that wasn't a choice. Well, and then and more than you think you have a choice. Like, so like Clark has this kind of like, there's this complicated relationship that like Clark and these characters have with choice where they're sort of like constantly innocent. Like, well, you fight her, like Clark even says, like, if the choice is between fight or die, there is no choice. Clark is like constantly operating these situations where like she's looking at choices that aren't actually choices. And now once again, like she's offered a choice that is not a choice to someone else. And that Octavia correctly points out that even Allie offers an actual choice. I mean, she yeah. doesn't anymore, you know, like they don't but know that did. now. But she yeah, did. Yeah. But initially, like at the beginning, everybody who took that ship, like as as far as they all know, with the exception of, I think we're, I think we assume that Raven knows that Abby took the chip for her, you know, which means we can assume off screen in some conversation that everyone else knows that now. We don't know. But beyond that, every other instance that they have was that whoever took the chip 
chose to take it because they wanted what the chip offered. So their understanding of how this technology works is that it is completely opt-in. They have no idea about the torture, you know, until they sort of see it later that they bring that, you know, to the oil rig that they see that happening with when they waterboard Luna. But up until that point, that their understanding of what this looks like is very different. And so again, so we do have sort of the resurgence a little bit, you know, in, in bits and pieces of Octavia the correct moral voice like the true octavia the like lincoln's octavia the person saying yeah, you know recognizes like, that this is the line that we're crossing yeah this decision that we're making right now means that we are not now and never really were giving her a choice and, you know, and that, we are becoming the people who take that away yeah and that and the sort of the interesting juxtaposition of both octavia and luna being the people who remind clark that if she isn't careful she's about to become worse than the enemy that she's fighting or at the very least the same yeah yeah exactly and i like clark being forced to face those questions because there aren't a lot of other characters who can credibly ask those questions of her and and really and really tell her like you need to think about not just the end result of you know you take down this enemy and then you believe that you've won this battle but also like the cost on your soul, like the cost of the choices that you make on the kind of person that it turns you into to have made those choices. I think she also makes Clark face the values she actually has versus the values she thinks she has. Right. She's saying to Clark, like, you need to face who you are. Yeah. And make a decision about if that's who you want to be. Right. And also think about choosing who you are and who you want to be like it's partly personal it's partly the the toll on your soul but it also has to do with like well you are an important person you are a mover and shaker in this world right and so the person that you choose to be shapes the world that you exist in right you have to understand that when you say you would do anything to defeat this enemy how is that different from blood must have blood it's not you know so like you just need to like recognize that and think about where you're gonna land which actually this is all making me think that like this is actually making me think it's more likely Possibly that what we're going to see in the next episode is Clark put in a situation where there is a kind of moment where she has to either take the chip or by refusing, it would force her to sort of like cross one of these lines, you know, like it's either chip or you really double down on this, like, well, whatever it takes to win the war kind of thing. Right. Um, And that Clark will take the chip, you know, like that she will maybe like somebody like they have somebody that they're going to kill. Maybe Abby, maybe they yeah. like, they bring in Abby and do the same thing mm-hmm. with Clark that they did with Kane. Yeah. Could be Bellamy, you know, like, mm-hmm. but yeah, anyway. Yeah. So that gets to my one, like, and I don't know what you want to say negative because I love Luna so much. My one, I guess, question about Luna's place in the narrative is like, in terms of pure plot mechanics, Luna doesn't advance the actual story. She circles it back. Like they're now in the same position that they were in when they thought that there were no Nightbloods, which means yeah. that Luna's impact has to be thematic and yeah. character growth based. So and I, I think set up for season four. So I feel like, I think that if we don't see the things that she said to Clark and Octavia have an impact on Clark and Octavia's behavior immediately, like that we see in the next two episodes, we watch them face with a choice or face with a moment where 
the things that Luna said to them about themselves have a real resonance, then mm-hmm. it's going to feel like this was like a waste a of time. Side trip. Well, the yeah. side trip to meet a really cool yeah. side character that stalled out the plot. So I'm hopeful because she was so awesome and because she was saying things that these people have needed to hear for a long time that do fit into these kind of overarching themes. My hope is that you're right, that what it's pushing us towards is Clark and Octavia at a crossroads as human beings. Yeah. You know, and having to make a choice about who they want to be, where they're always going to be predominantly and primarily motivated by saving their people and protecting each other, but that there are ways to do that that are better or worse in the long run for the kind of person that it turns you into and the kind of Mm -hmm. example that you're setting. And I think that watching them try to navigate that could be interesting because we had a lot of strategically manipulative Clark in this episode. You know, she didn't tell Luna that Titus killed Lexa. You know, like she was doing her thing that she does where she carefully withholds information. She went up to sort of have this like, let's have a nice conversation about life and fishing nets and conclaves. (laughs) Well, I'm going to stick this thing in your neck. You know, she was being classic, canny, strategic, crafty, manipulative, like tactical information withholding Clark. And it is possible that part of, I think, what she might have heard from Luna is like, is that who you really want to be? Mm-hmm. That may be an efficient way to get the thing that you want. But Luna is like, you know exactly where you are with Luna. Like yeah. Luna plays well, no fucking games. Like, you know, to go back to the atonement stuff that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You know, if, if in order to like fully atone for something, you have to understand the mistake that you made and why you made it and, you know, and kind of fix it. Then like also potentially for Clark, this is a kind of reckoning with like, well, listen, like the things that you've done, like the genocide of Mount Weather. Like, this is the reason that you did it. Right. You know, like, here are the assumptions that you were sort of operating under that made it possible for you to do that thing. Yeah. And you can't really work through those choices that you made until you face the reason you made them and then have to decide in the future, are you going to continue to make that decision? Right. Or are you going to choose differently? Yeah. When that that choice comes up again. Yeah. So I would like it, like you said, if it does come back around, if we're writing this is just kind of like a, a character thematic setup in terms of Luna's impact this season, and it does come back around and we see Clark in another moment where she can make a choice. She can choose between like fight or die or whatever. Like obviously he's not going to die, but like however that choice is framed where she's going to choose the other way, which could potentially be like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself and take the chip rather than, you know, let this other horrible thing happen. Right. That would be satisfying and i hope it does happen because you're right otherwise like luna is meaningless to the plot you know it's just kind of like well we like went to this went on a side trip that week while other people did things that (laughs) revealed plot specific stuff about Allie, and then we came back and my other concern about this in terms of how it plays into the finale is i like the idea that the journey that clark has been on in season three has been about kind of coming to a process of understanding and accepting the things that she did, the things that Bellamy and other people did. The whole season has been sort of a reckoning with the fallout of the end of season two, which is a bold storytelling choice that sort of has paid off in some places and not in other places. But my fear about that is how then do we reconcile taking a whole season to bring Clark to a place where she is 
atoning and understanding and coming to terms with and sort of reckoning with the deaths of Mount Weather and live with that side by side with the fact that it really, really, really seems like we're setting up for another mass genocide yeah. at the end of this season. Yeah. It yeah. seems less and less plausible that everybody in the City of Light is going to survive. It seems like the whole thing is building towards killing an even greater number of people to sort of break down these walls of creating this sort of smaller and more integrated sky crew delinquent grounders society like that feels like that's when where the whole thing has been trending and i feel like a lot of the new information about ally that we got seems to really support the theory that like a handful of individual significant characters who are then going to be in season four are likely to be able to maybe one by one be saved from the city of light yeah maybe everyone who's inside the citadel when it collapses those four people make are it out be okay you know right. yeah, um everybody else I'm pretty sure Jackson's going to die. I think there's a reasonable chance that Amori might die. I certainly think that blanket mass death of the majority of the people who are in there, which as Raven tells us, is all of Polis, like thousands of people. So then, A, just narratively, are we going back to the same beats over and over again where every season ends with Clark killing more and more people and then the next season being more and more wrecked about it, which doesn't feel like an interesting way for the story to go. And if that isn't the case if we're not repeating that beat and ramping it up so that it's tens of thousands instead of 300 then what's the end game and how does that all fall out so that you know that we land in a place where we do have this where it seems like things are really trending this sort of breaking down of these boundaries in a way that doesn't lead us with a season four that starts in the same place where clark is like i failed to save everybody and i am now distraught you know so i just find myself wondering like I see one really narratively satisfying thread building that is Clark taking this whole season to finally come to terms with Mount Weather. And I see this other kind of arc building that is leading us to the erasure of these hard and fast lines of demarcation about my people, your people, the old ways, the way things used to be, Sky Crew and the 13 clans and the delinquents and all of these sort of boundaries becoming more porous and that the inevitable way that that happens is that everyone is facing a bigger common enemy and that when the dust settles, they're all forced to sort of team up together in a much smaller and more diverse group because it's sort of like whoever is left rebuilding what's in the wreckage and those two storylines feel fundamentally at odds with each other yeah and it's tough to say because i think as we've talked about briefly like i I, it's you know like we're getting close to the end and the patterns are sort of emerging and it's looking like i'm not sure how much of the landing they're gonna stick there's been enough times where things have just not have sort of sloppily put together. I don't have like total faith right, <laughs> that right. that's going to happen. So, but I do think there's a few things that could mitigate some of this, which is like, for one thing, I think it would make a difference. Like, let's say that there is going to be like a mass death, you know, like everybody in who's in the city of light is going to die, which I think is pretty likely. If they die because of something that Allie does, and not because of something that Clark and or Clark and the other delinquents decide to do. That does make a difference. Not to say that it won't be like dark and terrible and kind of like, why do we have to end a season every single season with like more and more people dying? But won't but, that sort of be like Clark feeling like she failed to save? Won't well, that feel the same to her? I, I don't know. 
see, that's the thing. I think in that case, it's really all about the framing. Yeah. In this case, I don't think being like, X happens, we can easily say that therefore Clark will feel Y. That's Because true. what Clark feels is going to be dependent upon how much responsibility she thinks she has for it and why. And also it's going to depend on how much responsibility the show, like the narrative puts on her for it right. and why. So I do think, you know, like if it's a situation where, you know, like in that like darkest of all timelines where like Allie makes everybody kill themselves. Here's one scenario where that could happen. The final step of Allie's plan is to eliminate the bodies. Right. So if that's the, what it is and they find out and it's a race against time and they aren't able to save everybody, let's say you're right. Like they have to get everyone into the Citadel to save them or something like that. And they can't save everybody. Then you have a situation where a lot of people die and it is partly because they didn't quite succeed in saving them. But that's not the same as Clark pulling a lever and deciding to kill them. That's true. And I think Clark would feel that different. They would die trying to save as many as they could. And the people who didn't make it, it was because of what the enemy did, what they chose to do, and not because of what Clark chose to do. Because That's in true. both season one and season two, the traumatic mass death that happened was because Clark made an affirmative decision. So that would be one way that that could work out. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, because yeah. you're right. There's like a lot of other scenarios where like it could just be the same kind of thing again. Yeah, I hope that it isn't because I do feel like Clark has done this terrible thing and we're seeing her go on this whole epic journey of circling back around to come to terms with it. What I really want is for us to end where we started, but in a way where we see that Clark is reckoning with the thing that happened and both not repeating the same story beats but also not that we're continuing to like torture her as a person yeah. by like adding thousands of bodies to her death toll but I, but I do I think that the idea that like if everyone that survives survives because Clark saves them then that does flip that script in a way it that does flip it around feels she's, satisfying. she's yeah. a savior you know and then she's saving people she's not killing them yeah yeah, yeah. and the people there are people that she won't succeed in saving but that's not the same as having been the one to decide right. that they die right yeah so i think that that could work the other piece of this i think is the fact that luna's right about the way that Clark makes decisions yeah but like we were talking about earlier luna's way isn't necessarily right right it's not necessarily right to just like straight up refuse to kill all the time and in order to preserve that to like remove yourself and live in some secret location where no one can come who will ever force you to kill again, right? right? Like, so I think that Luna's isolationism, I do think that in this episode, I don't think we're meant to like look at Luna and Clark here and be like, oh, well, obviously like Luna's totally right and Clark is the bad guy now. Yeah. I think was, she's a foil. It's great. Right. She's a foil because she's forcing both us as an audience and Clark to stop and think about things and question things that we hadn't really been asked to question before. But, like, the answer to those questions aren't a given. Clark is right. Like, Clark says, like, there are times when it's right to kill. You know, aren't there things that are worth killing for? And Luna says, not for me. But, like, again, with Luna, it's always about the me part. You know, like, right. I don't think, like, the answer to Clark's question could be yes. Like, I think for Clark and for Bellamy and for most of the other characters, there are situations that are worth killing for. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, it is reasonable to argue yes, sometimes killing is the right thing to do. You know, maybe there is such a thing as an ethical war. I don't know if you've seen one being fought before, but maybe the war against Ali is an ethical war, right? Mm -hmm. That's the other part of it, I think, is that like 
it's not necessarily that in order for Clark to, to sort of like complete this arc of hers, that she has to be like, oh, you know what? Luna's right. Never going to kill anybody again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's more that she has to like consider it, you know? So like, I think even if there is a moment where like they have to make a choice and they wind up making a choice that is going to cost lives, it does make a difference if Clark and whoever else is involved in that choice is shown as like stopping and really truly, hey, we're going to make this choice. Like, it's not like I have to do this, right? Right, Like, I'm making a choice. I am weighing all of the sides. I'm truly weighing whether the the cost of the lives is worth the gain. Right. And I'm making the decision that, yes, they are. Like, that's also a little bit different. Yeah, because she hasn't done it before. She sort of has been like, this is just what we do. You know, or like, she's desperate. Like, you know, when she looks at Bellamy and when they're in Mountain Weather at the end of 216... Like, in that moment, Clark doesn't feel like she has a choice. Right. She thinks that she has to do that. Bellamy says together, but, like, she has already decided she has to do it even though she doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of always how it's been for Clark. So, I mean, even if what comes out of Luna is a sort of, like, reclamation of her free will and her choice in those situations where Mm -hmm. it kind of had felt like it was being taken away, that also maybe makes a difference. But, again, like, this is one of those things where it's, like, I think... It's so dependent on the details. It's really, yeah. really hard. It, there's like 8 billion different scenarios and each of them have different implications. And we can't really say, like, I can't like predict, like, well, it's going to be this one with these implications if, until we know, like, the devil was really in the very specific details. Right. Both character-wise and also sort of, like, in terms of presentation and narrative. So, like, I just don't think we can we can know until it happens. Yeah, and I'm really happen. interested in when we sort of circle back and we're talking about, like, after the finale, you know, when we can kind of look back at the whole scope of these big plot trajectories once we know where we land and once we kind of have a little bit more of a sense of what they're setting up for season four to kind of parse out did it land in a way that felt really satisfying or not? Because I want it to. There's so yeah. many different ways that it could too. work really well. Yeah, yeah, I think it could. And I do feel reasonably hopeful. It's just that every once in a while, I'm sort of like, are these two trains colliding? And we're going to end I up know, with like... right? Yeah. yeah and right. I don't know. But I think like maybe, maybe the best way to think about... Like with the Luna interlude, among other things, what it brings up, I think, is the question of, is it possible to have a peaceful society that isn't isolated? Right. Like, right. you know, is it possible to have a peaceful society that isn't, like, a secret Arcadian idol? <laughs> right. Um, and Luna seems to think the answer is no. That's the answer that Luna has come to. And she's got her right. reasons and she's got good reasons. There are things about her world that I think are definitely ideal. Like, And I, and I think, like, it was super duper important that, like, little scene with her with the kids. The contrast. Yeah. Luna with her kids versus Lexa with her kids, you know, like... Mm-hmm. They're both kind of like, they both have these loving relationships with these children that they're sort of mentoring to be leaders. But like the fact that the Nightbloods, those kids are being taught how to kill. Each other. Each other, right? Like there's this like sort of lovely little like, oh, our two, we love you all. And they were all tied together. But like you're training to be warriors who are going to murder each other for power. You yeah, know? like like and Aiden that, was like, supposed to kill all those other children. Exactly. So it's like nice that they are all sort of like sweet and together or whatever. But like the basis of your government is like we raise these kids to murder each other to be in charge versus Luna with her kids. She's like, she's teaching them how to make a fishing net so that they can feed each other. Yeah. And I think it's really significant that when she's talking to them, she says, we have to do this together. You know, like, we get that together dropped again. Yeah. And those togethers are so important. So I think there's all these little signals that, like, if we can figure out how to replace the kind of, like, like the Highlander sort of, like, there can be only one. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like, everyone must die until there's only one left sort of, like, ethos. 
that the world that that everybody else is doling in has, if you can figure out how to replace that with this kind of like together, we all are disparate individual people and peoples and whatever, and we have to do this together in order to survive. Like, I think that's really important. That's like a sort of like a moment of like, this is what we want to get to. But I do think like that sort of idea of like, it has to be isolated. I think Luna's wrong there, you know, like yeah. and, and potentially wrong, you know, like it's, it's open to debate, but her sort of like removing herself is maybe the kind of like, that's the, that kind of extremism. Cause she's also like, she's also very absolute, you know, well, that's like, what I was going to say. Like, I, I feel like she's in some ways, she's a really interesting juxtaposition to the Pike Murphy Indra trifecta in the dungeon and that intentional, dismantling of that sort of isolationism and also the fact that we know that the next episode the plot hinges really significantly on a team up between Clark and Rowan yeah exactly so so we have all of these groups of enemies we have all of these individual people who represent groups who hate each other who have been at odds for you know however long who are for the greater good willing to at least temporarily put those things aside to help each other and sort of recognize each other's humanity. And that is, you know, the piece that Luna's worldview is missing is Luna's worldview is not generous. Like Luna's worldview is not not community minded. The together thing is really limited where it's like together means my people specifically only. Right, exactly. And my people being like, you have to subscribe to a very specific set of beliefs. Right. Or you're out. Right. You know, Luna won't kill. But Luna is willing to do basically anything else to preserve her society. She'll drug them. You know, she's like roofie people right. left and right in well, order to like get them off her rig. And this is the part where I'm just like, are we meant to see a tiny bit of hypocrisy in Luna's stance? Because like, Floco has an ambassador. She's a participant in that political system because there were 12 ambassadors in that That's scene really with Naya. That might be a plot hole. Like, I wonder that might be if they a plot hole. thought yeah. about that. Yeah, because if we're meant to dismiss that because they were just like, because they weren't ready at that point to explain that flow crew is its own weird thing. And also, and this is something that, and that you and I talked about, you know, on Thursday after we watched the episode the first time, is another interesting question that this raises is how are clans then divided if Asgard is a hereditary monarchy, so presumably their clan is like, like it's it's by like ancestry and ethnicity, like you're born into Ice Nation, so you're Ice Nation. Right. And and the boat people are all refugees, which means there's a degree of choice in becoming one of those people. And so so there's some interesting questions about that, you know. But it does make me wonder. Maybe like, this is this is where we should start our, our new yes, segment, which let's is move to our new mystery segments. or plot hole. <laughs> so so the first oh my god, yes. Um so the first and most significant mystery or plot hole that that I want us to sort of like let's like let's Hercule Poirot this shit is who's <laughs> shift jaha asks ali he says oh the person hacking in from arcadia must be jacopo sinclair we have so many names this season by the way with jacopo sinclair we have zoe monroe we have harper mcintyre we don't know jackson's first name but we know that it's his last name because his mom's first name was mary it's like we're learning all these things about these people who are probably all gonna die but so he says oh it must be sinclair hacking in and she says sinclair is dead and he says how do you know and she says unimportant and breezes right past it there are three potential options one is just that They needed to convey that information and they were like, okay, so she just knows it because hand wave, blah, blah, something, something technology, just to convey that information and that it doesn't actually matter. 
matter. Um, yeah, or like, the, or that she had like she had access to the Ark security, Arcadia security. Yeah, yeah. The second way is that well, she, she, is she has that she has yeah. some kind of a way to monitor things happening in Arcadia that that would give her enough information to know that Sinclair was dead, but yeah. not or enough information. Like, saw the funeral or something. Yeah, something like that. Or that somebody from the Adventure Squad is chipped. The problem with that is that she doesn't at any point figure out that it's Raven, which means the person who's chipped, it can't be Harper or Monty or Brian or Miller. Otherwise, right. she would know exactly what was happening, who was doing it. The information that she has well, is Why Sinclair would she not dead. think it's Raven? She knows Raven is like this special mind who can figure, like, why would she not immediately be like, it's Raven? Right. But well, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Maybe Allie doesn't know what happens to somebody who disconnects from the hive. Oh, um, yeah. So the question of, of who has the chip is like in that moment in time, the information Allie has is that Sinclair is dead. The information that she doesn't have is what's happening now and who's actually doing it. So it feels like it can't be somebody on that half of the adventure squad, that it can't be obviously Raven or Monty or Miller or Brian. Plus also like when would they have gotten a chip? And when would the, they have the gotten chip a chip? That that we know that they have. We saw Monty holding. Right. And they all watched what happened to Raven. Uh, yeah. The only person who was really susceptible to chip temptation was Monty. And they shut that down very thoroughly yes. in this episode. I think Harper was a fake out. I think the Harper and Monty yeah. sex scene, which was which was its own kind of like, like where, where did this come from? Why did mystery. this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, is this going to is going to bear fruit later? Are they like a thing now? Because it didn't seem grounded in anything that had happened before. But I, I suspect that. It was some sleight of hand to make us wonder if it was Harper who was chipped. But it yeah. can't be Harper who was chipped because if Harper was chipped, then Allie would know it's Raven and she would have known that long she know, before. She would have been able to like be in the room looking at the screens and see what Raven was exactly. doing. Harper so would have been be there the Harper. whole time. Sidebar, by the way, I'm extremely worried about Harper because she now has a last name and also spent the entire episode talking about how like weird it was to have peace and whatever. Would they I know. Be, like, I was like, be happy oh, oh, honey. Like, gave you a last name and you got to be happy for a second. Yeah, I was like, you're probably going to be dead in, like, five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that seems to me to eliminate that half of the Adventure Squad as the potential chipped person, which brings us to the other half. And even this I'm not sure about, because this is where I feel like it could just genuinely be a plot hole. The most likely is that at some point in between Allie saying Jasper is slowing down the show... And when we see Jasper again, and then there is a cut to him where he has kind of a strange expression on his face that he has either forcibly taken the chip because they're like literally like torturing him or that he takes it to save that little girl or to save Luna or something like that, that we don't see it happening, but that sometime in the intervening time that Jasper takes the chip because it's after that, that then she knows about Sinclair. But the problem with that is that then he does seem like his face seems to register real panic. He seems to be reacting like regular Jasper from that point to the rest of the episode in several key places where he's having an emotional reaction to what's happening to everyone around him that he doesn't look chipped. And since no one is watching him, like those reactions aren't for the benefit of 
somebody right. it's else. Not like, it's not like Emery, you know, when Murphy saw her in the market and she's like performing for him. Because right. She's or to Abby or Abby faking worry yeah. about Clark because Kane's watching her, you know, and then the expression shifts when Kane can't see her. You know, it didn't feel like that at all. It, this all felt sort of authentically Jasper. So, so then right. that, which could also just be like them trying to be cagey so that when it's revealed... It's a shock. Yeah, Although because it's we not, do, because then they leaked pictures of Jasper in the city. That's of light. the thing is, I'm like, if Jasper took the chip, and they're building it up as some kind of a mystery, who took the chip? Who took the chip, guys? And it really is Jasper. We all knew that in January, and that's a yeah. bananas thing to give away that early in the game. You right, you've taken like, all the steam out of the reveal of Clark being like, Jasper, what are you doing in the city of light? Right. So part of me wants to be like, was it an elaborate? hoax you know like i don't know right, i have no idea yeah. because it feels like logically for that information to be conveyed to ali in the order that it's conveyed that jasper's the only logical person and that yeah. we do know and have known all season that somehow he ends up in the city of light and, and we're I could totally see that being like a like next week that being a whole because i mean it makes sense right. because then like so they go back and they find roan and they come up with whatever you know like whatever their secret plan is to yeah like, to, to have Rome pretend that he's captured Clark and bring her in, right. which I think, like I said, I think is probably a diversionary yeah. tactic for something or other. And then, like, of course, like, the big, you know, shocking, like, gut punch reveal is that, like, Jasper's been chipped all along and Allie knows the whole plan and they're fucked, you know, because, like, as soon as Clark shows up, they, whatever, they call their bluff. Right. Which, like, you know, like, which I could see that. Like, I could totally see it happening if Jasper, if they, they, what's supposed to be happening is that Jasper got chipped somewhere. Right. You know, like, when, when Luna's head was underwater and we were watching that instead of what was happening in the yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. could totally see that. But like you said, but it's like, but if that's the big reveal, then you freaking blew it in January. Right, you know? right. Then, like, like, that's... Then, like, then, that, then now that's like, well, yeah, obviously. Right, so that's, that's <laughs> where, where I feel like if you remove the part where it was like, Everybody come and take cell phone pictures so that everyone in the whole world now knows that Jasper and Lex are in the City of Light. Like, if you subtract that, Jasper being chipped the whole time, turning on them at the 11th hour in a way where you get a really high-stakes, suspenseful cut between Clark seeing him in the City of Light at the moment that he turns on them and does some whatever thing in the real world is a perfect place to end part one of the finale. Yes. Right, exactly. And, and it's like, because oh, no, everything's yeah, ruined. Big yeah. twist. Yeah, and, and what yeah. are they going to do? Because it's Jasper. They can't kill him. But if they don't kill him, then Ali still has his brain. Like, that's a great cliffhanger. Except that right. it isn't. That's like, why did they take the wind out of the sails of that cliffhanger? If that's really what that it was. That was the worst fucking decision. It was. Like, it, whoever decided yeah. to do that PR stunt. Yeah. It has been, like, a disaster on yeah. every level. Practically, the the entire Ali commander plot more or less like the bones of it we guessed by that day and like the pieces that we didn't guess based on the promo we figured out because of that right. stupid stunt right like you literally gave away your entire season right and also even worse you like also made you know like Klexa shippers and Lexa fans believe that she was going to live to the finale which even worse because like that was the reason you did it right to make them believe that she was going to live until the finale yeah you know so like people like who weren't totally invested in that it was like still pretty obvious like we still knew that she was probably gonna like we figured out what that what the, the connection was gonna be and what the city of light probably was and that her being in there she could still be dead on the outside and still be in there right you know so it's like you either gave away your entire story or you convinced people that a character was going to live when she wasn't or both 
And all of those outcomes are terrible. Like, that was just, right. like, the worst decision Yeah, you could possibly make. Yeah, and for very little... I mean, I don't think that that choice of something to generate buzz was a good one. I understand no, that it's like, I, yeah. that's what they were filming when the, the week that the premiere aired, and they right. wanted a lot of social media traffic and buzz. And they don't generally film in central Vancouver. They're like out in the woods somewhere and they're hard to find, you know? So I understand why it was appealing, but I feel like not even getting into the manipulation of of the fandom, but just purely talking about it. Lexa makes it to the finale, you know, like, oh, JK makes the first. No spoilers, but we're filming the finale and here's Alicia Dedman Carey and everyone's like, okay, well, good. So we know for sure that she's not going to die, you know, and which is just, which is just mean spirited in a way that I don't think that they thought through. But even dismissing all of that kind of fandom side of it and just looking at it plot wise, I feel like, Going into the beginning of this season, knowing that those specific two people, Jasper and Lexa, end up in the City of Light with Clark, if things are unfolding the way that we predict that they are unfolding, that completely undoes what I imagine would have been two enormous plot reveals and makes me a little grumpy that I don't get to watch the show with those things being surprises. Because the second that you show... Lexa and Clark in their season two costumes in a right. modern setting. You're like, yeah. we are in some kind of a virtual alternate reality that's yeah. probably with the City of Light and the commanders are hooked up to it. It's like the only thing that we didn't figure out from that was that there was two City of Lights. Yeah. Cities of Light. But, but we'd already figured out that probably the commander was connected to the City of Light. Yeah, so and the reincarnation, like, oh, you know, that the yeah, reincarnation exactly. was technological. Like all that yeah. stuff was embedded in the fact that, you know, that we're seeing like, a modern city street with Clark and Lexa looking like they did at the end of the last season where it's like, okay, so this is some kind of a like virtual dream sequence some something and then extrapolating from that, like we were able to put all the rest pieces together and it wasn't just us, you know, like other yeah, people no, think no, of that, you know, yeah. and that now other people put that together too because it was pretty, because it was know. pretty straightforward and, and yeah, now we're yeah. landing in a place where the secondary reveal of Jasper is also becoming hugely plot relevant and feels mm-hmm. like a big twist that has been untwisted for us because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we saw it before the show even aired. I guess what's been interesting is knowing going into this season that Jasper ended up in the City of Light and somehow taking a chip, what has been interesting about that journey to watch is all of the different ways that it has seemed like that was going to happen that haven't been how it happened. Like, again, if this hadn't been, you know, spoiled beforehand, there's something really interesting in the idea that, like, it's been sort of built up all along that it would be some huge moment, that it would be some big emotional thing, that it would be about Maya, that it would be about his inability to deal with his grief, that it would be about his desire to forget that it'll be sort of tied in with his self-destructive behavior. And so if in the end, how he gets there is quietly off camera to save somebody he doesn't even know because he's being tortured, that's an interesting choice for Jasper. It's a puzzling one, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. But but it is one of the many, you know, it's like mystery or plot hole, along yeah. with <laughs> how do chips get onto the oil rig? Because Bellamy's hand-waving line about the drone doesn't make any sense. Because somebody, because again, because Allie needs meat space. A human person has to choose to ingest a chip for Allie to have access to anything. And she's on the ship already before Jasper is even in play. Jasper didn't arrive chipped. 
Like, none of them arrived, shipped. Otherwise, again, Allie would know that Clark had the flame. Allie yeah. would know that's where they were. So clearly, Allie wasn't on the oil rig until the Adventure Squad came to the oil rig. But then, how does Cap get shipped? Who gives Cap a chip? A right. drone just drops a blue thing from the sky. He's like, what's this? And then eats it? Like... <laughs> like are right. we or supposed like, to or like it just swoops down and shoves it in his mouth and he like swallows yeah like, like the drone thing doesn't yeah. make any sense because the science of how Ali works has been presented consistently this entire time that a human has to put the thing in their mouth and then once one person has done it they can get other people to do it but someone's got to do it first right and so I mean like the other possibility I think is that like a drone followed the ship that brought them there and transmitted back the route and then some chipped person or people followed like on a boat and arrived but that still actually doesn't really solve anything because a how would they not notice just like a random dude rolling up and being like we didn't see anybody not recognizing anyone the only intruders on the oil rig were our people exactly so then like so like how did that person just show up and then like how did they, again, how did they convince these people to take this sh- this chip? Like, it just, like, that one really feels to me like they did not have an answer. They needed certain people to be chipped at a certain point in right. the plot of the episode. Right. And they did not really have, like, a clear solution to the problem. So in order to solve it, it was like, well, Bellamy can say, like, ah, oh, it must have been a drone that followed us. Like, right. the one that was at Nyla's that I shot out of the sky, but there are more and we didn't notice. It's just like... Well, and what's a bummer is, like, it actually feels to me like it feels fixable. Because if all along, yeah. like, if, if in every crowd scene on the oil rig, we have been able to see Allie. Because this also works against, like, is an interesting look at Luna's isolationism. Allie has already, and we wouldn't even need to see how, like Allie has sent somebody to the oil rig. Like Allie knows where all the grounders live. Maybe she doesn't know that Luna's a nightblood, but she knows that there are populations of grounders all over the place. She's spreading out from Polis. She's got a mole, you know, maybe just one person in among the boat people being her spy. And if we got panning crowd shots with Allie in the background where we couldn't necessarily see or tell who she was attached to and that we know that she knows Clark is there. She's sort of waiting to see what Clark will do, waiting for an opportunity to get her hands on the flame. And then Cap locks him in the shipping container elevator thing. Like once again, Allie's one step ahead of them. And once again, they're having to fight off people that, you know, that Allie has chipped. And that because she doesn't have everybody that's a finite amount that they actually can like temporarily sort of take control back. But that then also that leaves with a sense that like that Luna isn't safe. And she still isn't. I mean, I think that's like the the point that Clark makes, which is correct, which is that like you can't, this is like one that you you can't actually remove yourself completely. And so that's an interesting kind of commentary on Luna having to potentially acknowledge a little bit the way we saw Nyla do where it's like, I don't like you and I don't trust you and you brought trouble to my house, but I, I trust you enough to believe you when you're telling me that I'm no longer safe, you know? Yeah. And so watching Luna deal with sort of the fallout of, like, not just that she had to kill, but also that, like, her security was always a false security because she doesn't mm-hmm. have allies. She isn't part of sort of the bigger society. And that also would sort of address the question of how does Ali find out that Clark is there with the flame? Because the drone thing makes no logical sense. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Wait, what? Ooh, what? Does Cap turn on her or is it Derek and the other people it's Cap first and Cap is the one who is waterboarding her Derek takes the chip 
to oh, that's stop right. him. Okay, but but here's why I ask. Because if it's Cap, because like, so Cap is the captain of the boat, right? right? So he is just arriving back from the mainland when Luna arrives with the delinquents. Because Luna says like, sorry, you got to turn around and take them back, right? So he's just come back. Okay. And, but he's already chipped at that point, right? Yeah. Okay. So, like, so they could have, I don't know why they didn't do this unless it's going to come up later or whatever. It seems like the reasonable explanation would be that Cap got shipped while he was on the mainland. Yeah. Like a drone followed them to the landing point and there were like alley people waiting for him when he got there. Yes. He got shipped and then came back. Okay, that doesn't work. That could be for him. But then there were other people who were with, like there were people who were on the rig already who were chipped who were helping him. Yeah, because so there was like five dudes when they shot Shay. But then like like Cap, that would have to be how Cap got chipped because he wasn't on the rig to get chipped with them. Right. So basically it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Because because either either Cap got chipped on the mainland and then chipped like eight other people in two minutes. Yeah, like arrived and was like, quick, eat these. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, like I, I'm confounded. I want yeah. this to make sense. If anyone has any other better theories, please, please, please us. send let us know. Yeah. Because I have not been able to figure this out. I listened to the 100 podcasts on the giantess. They were not able to figure this out. No one can figure this out. <laughs> like, I just, I don't. I, I don't think there's an answer, you know. Yeah. Like, Hopefully we will get some resolution to at least a couple of these mysteries or plot holes in the <laughs> next two episodes. But long story short, we love Luna. She's we love amazing. Luna. Yes. Always happy to have Luna back. She is a freaking badass. And I love that Clark was like, you ran away. And Luna was like, ha ha. I would have wanted to. Not because I was a coward. I ran away because I was awesome and I was like, you bitches can't handle me. I ran away because like I was going to kill him and I didn't want to. Yes. Interesting, like she said I had to kill my brother. You know, I wonder if that's like a little sort of like, it immediately makes me think of Octavia and Bellamy, but that could just be like, well, it could just be like they randomly picked brother. Where I feel like it might become plot relevant potentially is it's also the only inkling that we ever get that being in Nightblood is potentially hereditary. That's true, yeah. Does Luna have a kid? Does Lexa yeah. have a sibling? Um, Does Aiden have like a little sibling who has? Is there a baby Nightblood somewhere? So, is someone gonna yeah. have a baby? Is there gonna be like a grounder baby born who's in Nightblood? Like, is this? Oh my god! Wait, what? I saw something crazy. This is totally. This is so crazy. <laughs> this is not even gonna happen. But like, is it possible that? The plot thread that went nowhere back in the premiere where Jackson mentions women having their contraceptive chips taken out. And the sort of like... Octavia has a nightblood? Does Octavia have a nightblood baby? Oh my god! Like, like maybe, maybe, I don't know. Like, does Lincoln have genetic nightblood in his ancestry what? somewhere? Oh my god, what if Lincoln was in a conclave too? Ooh, oh my god. What if he ran away first? Well, we've seen Lincoln bleed though. Oh damn! Okay, but 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 it's clearly a recessive gene because it pops up randomly. Yes, so but he could be he could be related to Luna somehow. Yeah, yeah, he could be or, like her or, other brother. Yeah, or Lexa because he's tree crew. Or Lexa, yeah. yeah. So just crew. so I'm just wondering. Well, we don't actually know because like flu crew apparently is just like a thing that Luna made. Right. So we don't actually know that Luna was. We don't know what? anyone's what? actual like ethnicity, and we seem to be given to understand that the boat people. Like, that she sort of founded them? Whenever Lex's conclave was, however right. long she's been. But not that long. Yeah. You know, like, I think that it seemed like, in season two anyway, the implication was that she had not been commander for more than a couple of years. Yeah. I'm only wondering just because it feels like 
they wouldn't have put that in the beginning of the show if somebody wasn't going to end up pregnant. And so I'm just wondering if like a Nightblood baby is going to be part of season four potentially and like we find out somebody is pregnant. Like, I don't know. I really feel like the flame is not going to be... Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't see the AI getting out of this season. Right. Although, if it does, it would be fucking amazing if Octavia turned out to be pregnant with a Nightblood baby. Yeah. But I really kind of feel like that the flame is just going to be, like, the whole thing is just going to be, like, sort of dismantled. Yeah, true. And I would prefer it that way, just kind of, Me like... Me too. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's time for a new world order. But if somebody would like to write that alternate timeline where Octavia has a Nightblood baby... Yes. ...becomes commander... Yeah, I'd read it. That'd be pretty yeah. sweet. I'd yeah. read it. <laughs> Alrighty, we should probably wrap this up. So we will see you all back here next week for the first installment of the two-part finale, Perverse Instantiation, part one, episode 315, which is very suspenseful and stressful and exciting. Um, The trailer looks amazing. I'm really excited about the potential of Indra looking like she has to, like, attack chipped cane with a gun. OMG. Um, all roads lead to Polis and all of our plots are starting to kind of converge, yeah. which is very exciting. And Roan is back. And Roan is, is back. My We're buddy. so happy to have Roan back. Uh, and, <laughs> so I'm he can so side-eye Bellamy. And this is the first time Roan will have seen Bellamy and Clark in the same place since yeah. he stabbed Bellamy in the leg and also like listened to Clark beg yes. for Bellamy's life. So, in, you know, in my like, heart of hearts, Roan is like the OG Belark shipper. Yes, exactly. It's like, <laughs> just get it's like, it together. Oh, you two kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I like, I mean, like, I, I did initially, like, when we first met him, I was sort of low-key shipping him with Clark because they had just bonkers chemistry, but I do really feel like I love the idea of him being more of, like, their Yenta, you know? <laughs> like, like Ron is, like, her wingman. <laughs> I wouldn't be mad at him sticking around and, like, I don't know, like, I, I could be, I could be down with Ice Mechanic. And they meet for the first time in this episode. Yeah. We're going to watch the sparks Ooh. fly. Ooh. Birth of a new ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so so tune back next week where I'm sure we probably will have at least a little bit of ice mechanics screaming. <laughs> uh, good times. Uh, all right. Well, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week.